as you'll hear in a minute, this is written by the elder. And that is a reference to the apostle John, uh, who wrote the Gospel of John, uh, the book of Revelation, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, was a very close friend of Jesus. And you will also hear that he is writing to, and I quote, the elect lady and her children. Well, that is a reference to, to the church, to a local church or churches in a local area. Uh, and then the children being the members of that church. And then we're also going to come across the words deceiver and antichrist. Uh, and this is referring to false teachers. So not to any particular person per se, but to anyone whose teaching is contrary to the true gospel of Jesus. Any teaching that's contrary to that gospel is is revealed to the apostles. And so with that said, uh, let's pray and then we will hear uh, this letter. Lord, we do thank you for your word. And we pray now, asking that you would help us to hear and to understand and believe that we might better walk in truth and love together. And it's in Jesus we pray. Amen. And so the letter of 2 John. Hear the word of God. The elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, Not as though I were writing you a new command, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. This is the Word of God. Well, to help us uh, better understand, to help us better hear what's being said in this letter, we're going to consider the beginning and the end of the letter first, which you've got listed as the greeting and the final greeting. We're going to 
put those together and talk about those first and then look at the two parts of the body of the letter in reverse order. In other words, this is what we're going to do. We're going to look at the context, the conflict, and the command. So we're going to, we're going to look at the context, the, those bookends, uh, verses 1 to 3 and 12 to 13, and I'll give you a little background as well for the letter. And then the conflict, uh, verses 7 to 11, uh, what's the situation of the church, the challenges uh, that are facing the warning. And then finally, the command, verses 4 to 6, uh, the central teaching about truth and love. And so those three headings, context, conflict, and command. And we begin with the context, uh, the bookends, the, the background. Again, it's the Apostle John who is writing this letter. He's writing to a local church or churches in a local area. Uh, and we know from research that he is probably writing from Ephesus, uh, writing to the church in the surrounding region and possibly uh, to those churches that are named later in Revelation uh, chapters 2 and 3. And then at the very end of the letter, we see that he's run out of paper. I mean, that's what it says. Well, kind of. Take a look at verse 12. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you face to face. Now, we're so used to having paper available all the time if we wanted to write a letter. Or even not worry about paper because we could just email or text or what have you. But, but what it, what's happened is given the length of this, we, we know that he's probably come to the end of his sheet of papyrus. Papyrus was expensive. So he's just not going to pull out another sheet of expensive papyrus at this time, especially because he hopes to visit them soon, face to face, so he will fill them in more. But the big, big question here is why? Why is John writing this letter? Well, he is giving the church a warning. And what happens when warnings aren't heeded? You sink. I mean, think of, think of the Titanic. John is warning the church that what might look innocuous on the surface, actually deep down below the surface, it will rip them in two and they will sink. John is warning the church about the problem of traveling false teachers who invite themselves to enlighten Christians with their so-called deeper truths, which aren't really truth at all. And so let's talk a little bit about those traveling false teachers. Uh, let's look now at the conflict, uh, verses 7 to 11. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. And if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Okay, those are some strong words for sure. 
And, and why would John need to write something so strong? Why would he need to give this warning in the first place? Well, think back to history class. Uh, you, you remember studying the, the Roman Empire, first century Roman Empire. You remember the Roman roads. They opened everything up. They made travel so much easier, so much safer than it had ever been before. But hotels are still a long way off. And so when teachers of the, the Christian faith, when they traveled throughout the empire, they relied on local churches for food and lodging. But there were also false teachers who hit the road with their message and also some religious uh, racketeers as well. And so John writes, because the church needs to learn discernment in the face of such threats. Well, what is it? say about these deceivers and false teachers? Well, bottom line is this. They aren't teaching the gospel as revealed to the apostles. In verse 9, we see that they are adding to the teaching of Christ and thus departing from it. In verse 7, we see that they aren't emphasizing or even acknowledging the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. I want you to take a look at that phrase for a moment. The coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. John's used a similar phrase already in, in 1 John. And it might be easy to just read over, but this phrase is really shorthand for the incarnation and crucifixion. And you know, that's pretty central to the Christian faith. The incarnation and crucifixion. To miss that is to miss salvation. Jesus Christ, God's Son, come in the flesh. That is the concrete reality on which our salvation rests. Salvation is not some esoteric, ethereal idea. It's not some subjective spirituality defined by the spirit of the age. Our salvation rests on the objective, concrete reality of Jesus Christ God's Son come in the flesh. Fully God, fully man, dying on a cross on a particular day, at a particular time in history, in our place. That's the objective reality that changed the course of history and on which our salvation rests. And John says, verse 8, to watch yourselves, to guard yourselves from false teaching so that you remain rooted in the truth. And you know that warning is just as relevant for us today. About ten years ago, a, a passionate, uh, controversial novel uh, came out, quickly made it to the top of the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, it depicted faith, Suffering, forgiveness, reconciliation, intimacy with God in ways that people had not heard described quite like that before. It really grabbed the attention of millions, generated a lot of spiritual buzz, spiritual reflection and conversation. And it is now sold over 20 million copies. And it, it's a fascinating read uh, with a wonderful emphasis on God's love. 
But it, its theology is all over the place, and, and it, it sometimes really isn't very clear. Now, initially, I was sympathetic uh, with the author uh, because I had learned of his background. Uh, severe abuse as a child uh, on the mission field, a, a missionary kid who'd basically been Bible-beaten, if my understanding is right, not listened to when he cried out for help and was a problem on the mission field, so he was sent away, sent away to boarding school where he received further abuse. So you can imagine the brokenness in this man's life as he grew up and, and really wrecked his life, his marriage, his kids. And so the book is really a process of him working through that, a guy who had struggled most of his life to even believe that there could ever be a God of love. However, his first work of nonfiction was just released this year. Lies We Believe About God, which sadly enough would be better entitled Lies About God because of its false teaching. Uh, the author here gives a more propositional, definitive expression of his relatively newfound and newly articulated beliefs. And he's very clear now, upholding universalism, that there is no need for repentance and faith, as the Bible calls us to, that everyone will be saved. Saying also that sin doesn't separate us from God. And denying the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. In other words, denying Jesus Christ in the flesh, the shorthand, the incarnation and crucifixion together. And the list goes on and on. Uh, one pastor reviewing this new book wrote, Unfortunately, the theology espoused in this book represents a wide and unambiguous deviation from orthodox Christian views. I mean no personal animus to the author in saying this, nor do I question his intentions. But the reason categories like orthodoxy and heresy arose in church history is precisely because Christians have maintained that there are right and wrong ways to think about God and that pointing out the differences matters. And that's what John is getting at in this letter. That's what John means by someone who, verse 9, goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ. These are false teachers. And John says this about them. Verses 10 and 11. If anyone comes to you and does not bring the teaching of Christ... Do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Whoa, now wait a second. I mean, didn't Jesus show hospitality to sinners? D didn't Paul and Peter exhort us to do the same? Isn't the mission of the church to engage the world? Bringing to it the gospel of Jesus Christ. Aren't we to dialogue with and, and befriend those who aren't yet Christians? In, inviting them into our home, into our lives, just as we do with our, our Christian brothers and sisters. Yes, 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 and yes. 
But here, here's the difference. Here's the distinction. Remember that John is not writing this letter to a particular individual. John is writing this letter to the local church. So he's writing it to a group of people. And he's writing to the church about false teachers who show up and claim to be Christian teachers. And so when he says, do not receive them into your house, he is speaking about the house of God. And about not welcoming false teachers as guest speakers into the house of God. In other words, don't host false teachers at speakers, as speakers at your church conference. Or as preachers at your worship service. To do so would be to endorse false teaching and thus take part in his wicked works. So there's a New Testament scholar uh, down at UNC uh, who denies the Christian faith, Uh, leads many young Christian students uh, to doubt, even reject, uh, eventually the claims of Christ, uh, and and many non-Christians to not even consider them. When I was a a campus minister there, I I did have lunch with him once, but I never, never thought about inviting him to large group. I never endorsed his books. To do so would have been to, to officially, publicly receive and greet him. The the words used in, in, in the text. It would have been to officially and publicly receive and greet in the house of God. And to do so would have been to endorse false teaching and thus to partake in his wicked works. Again, John says, we must watch ourselves. We must guard ourselves from false teaching so that we remain rooted in the truth. And though the the purpose of this letter is a warning, The heart of it is a command. The command, the familiar command, to love one another. A command rooted in the truth. And so finally, let's look at the command. uh, Verses 4 to 6. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new command, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. Sound familiar? Well, these verses are basically a remix of the major themes in John's first letter, which we preached on about three years ago. And as you probably know, the Apostle John was deeply rooted in Christ's love. And then it just overflows abundantly in his writing and in his love for his brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, you, You may have heard before that the church father Jerome tells us that when John became too old and too weak to to stand and to preach before his congregation, that he would ask men from the church to carry him in to the worship service, and he would just content himself mumbling this brief word of exhortation. 
Little children, love one another. Love one another. Over and over and over. And so when the people would grow tired of that message and ask, why do you repeat that all the time? His answer was this. Because it is the Lord's command, and if this is all you do, it is enough. Love one another. It's enough. And we're not talking about a hallmark kind of love. We're not talking about sentimentality, uh, Valentine's Day. No, we are talking about self-giving, self-sacrificing love. In 1 John, the apostle writes, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. And, and of course, I'm sure you remember when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment of all? What matters most? And then he answered with what we refer to as the great commandment or the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. Two sides of the same coin. That's what matters most. Love God. Love others. And then later uh, in his ministry, Jesus, uh, this is recorded in the Gospel of John, chapter 13. The night that Jesus was, was uh, betrayed. This is the, the Lord's Supper. And Jesus says to his disciples, A new command I give to you, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And then here in our passage, John writes, Love one another. This is the commandment. Just as you have heard from the beginning so that you should walk in it. But how do we know what love really is? How do we know? We must always look to the cross. We must continually look to the cross of Jesus. As John previously wrote, by this we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us And we ought to lay down our lives for one another. And so because God is love, we are commanded to love like God, to love like Jesus, sacrificially, laying down our lives for one another. So when I was a toddler, my family went to the beach. At that point, it was just mom and dad and me. My brother hadn't been born yet. And, and I grew up next to my next door neighbors. There were two teenage girls, and, and either one of them would, would often babysit for me. And so one of the teenage girls accompanied us on this uh, particular trip to the beach so that my parents could actually get some rest, and she would, uh, would play with me in the ocean. So my parents were sitting on the beach one day, and she had me out in the ocean, you know, waist deep, chest deep, depending on the tide and the waves, and we're, we were having a great time. Until all of a sudden, she saw in the water something that frightened her. And rather than screaming and running out of the water, she quietly picked me up out of the danger and put me on her shoulders. And then with all the intentionality in the world, she walked calmly out of the water toward the beach. And of course, I'm on top of her shoulders having a great time, but my parents can see 
that there is anguish, there is pain. She is weeping silently as she comes out. And as she arose out of the water, they began to see why. Because the jellyfish, one by one, started dropping off of her her chest and her stomach and her legs. She had seen a school of poisonous jellyfish coming for us. And she quietly, calmly walked to my parents, handed me to them, and then just collapsed. Now, there was medical care, and she recovered a few days later. But when I think back to that moment, this young teenage girl, the sacrificial love, keeping me in mind first, laying down her life in a sense so that I would be okay and at great cost to her. Again, in John's words, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. To love like Jesus, that's what we're called to do. And the only way to do it is to continually depend on him. Or as John says elsewhere, and you've already heard this in, your, in the words of grace today, The only way to do this is to love through him. Well, that's what it means here in our passage, to love in truth, and thus to walk in truth and love. But has it struck you as we've read this letter that these two paragraphs, if you will, these two parts of the letter, they seem kind of odd. I mean, how, how, do they, how do these two sections of John's letter fit together? I mean, you've, you've got a command to love and then a warning against false teachers. How, how do they relate? Well, here's how. Love confronts and love cares. Love confronts and love cares. I mean, think about a, a healthy family, mom and dad with kids, mom and dad confronting the dangers within and without as well as caring for those children as they grow up. And so it should be within the family of God. Love confronts and love cares. We must watch ourselves. We must guard each other from falsehood and encourage each other in the truth and love of Jesus day after day after day. And you know what? We are all susceptible. We are all susceptible to believing untruths. We all do it to varying degrees every day. You know, think about the traveling false teachers of our day. Those who, who merely present themselves as Christian teachers but aren't. They still come to us. They come to us via television, podcasts, social media, the internet, as well as books. Some emphasize being true to yourself, finding your identity within yourself rather than in Christ. Others emphasize the pursuit of happiness above all other things. That life is really all about self-fulfillment, watching out for number one. Some false teachers promote freedom to do as you please, seeking freedom apart from God, apart from the Creator, which is actually bondage to self. And still others promote either their own legalistic morality or those who espouse 
Truth and morality is relative to one's personal preferences rather than according to God's design. And the list goes on and on and on. But again, we are all susceptible to believing untruths, which is why we're called to love one another. Love confronts and love cares. We all need to confront and to care, and we all need to be confronted and to be cared for. Confrontation and care both involve self-sacrifice, self-sacrifice, sacrificial giving of oneself for the sake of others. And to truly love one another includes protecting each other from harm. And so, brothers and sisters, to do that, we must continually look to the cross of Jesus, the ultimate form of confrontation and care in love. Confronting sin and death head on. Providing care for all who look to Jesus. Protecting us from eternal harm. That one day we may know eternal joy. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for giving yourself for us. And we pray now that by the power of your spirit, you would enable us to give ourselves in love for one another. To truly love one another as you have loved us. Amen.